Welcome to the Where Humanity Meets Technology podcast, where we talk to business leaders about cybersecurity, data management, and advanced digital solutions to provide strategies to increase the profitability of your company. Now, here's your host, Maurice Hamilton, the CEO of Infinivate Consultancy Services. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, where we call it Humanity Meets Technology. This is a podcast show where I interview founders, CEOs, CIOs, CTOs, and business leaders to discuss real-life solutions of humanity, utilizing technology for the betterment of their organizations and for the betterment of mankind. Topics may vary from data management, cybersecurity, custom software development, and digital solutions. We also discuss trends in technologies, such as the use of artificial intelligence, robotics, decentralized finance, cryptography, and blockchain. I'm your host, Maurice Hamilton, and today's episode, we're going to spend some time speaking with Eyal Yogav, CEO and co-founder of Ajuna Security. So without further ado, Eyal, I want to say welcome to the podcast. I am so happy to have you here. I got a lot of questions about you and your, your company here, and I just uh, I think you have a lot of information, great information that you can share with our audience that they can really use. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Maurice. Thanks for inviting me to uh, to be on. Oh, thank you. Thank you again. So before I even dive into my questions here, I, I like to start the podcast show and and with, with uh, what I call like a Genesis question. And and, as, and we're going to just kind of take give our audience like a really high level overview of how you actually got into where you are today. And you uh, went out because I saw that you worked for Cisco. You worked with uh, Safe Breach, I believe it was. Safe Breach, you worked yep. with uh, some of those really big corporations out there. And I'd just like to know, how did you actually start to get to where you are today? How did it all begin to have that interest in, in security? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I guess my entire career was in enterprise security. I've been doing enterprise security for oh, close to 25 years now, uh, crazy to say. I uh, started um, in uh, Unit 8200, which is the uh, Israeli equivalent of the NSA. So spent a few years in the uh, public sector. And then after a few years, moved to the uh, to the private sector and spent most of my career in enterprise security companies doing product management. And I was at um, Imperva for the three years leading up to the IPO. I was at a, a company called Lookout, which is a mobile security company. I was at OpenDNS. I led the uh, umbrella product management team uh, of OpenDNS. We eventually got acquired by Cisco. And at Cisco, uh, OpenDNS essentially took ownership of cloud security for Cisco. And I managed the product management aspect of that as part of umbrella. Uh, and eventually, after a couple of years at Cisco, I got an offer to join uh, a startup called SafeReach, a Sequoia-backed company, to be their VP of product. And I essentially went there to lead their product management organization. Well, so you've seen a lot of changes over the years. And and every time you probably see those breaches with those big corporations like Target and and even with the, uh, with the U.S. government, some of the different places where there's been a breach, you look at that and say, it's got to be a better way. It's got to be a better way. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, which is exactly sort of what got me to to start the company. The essentially security is that there's sort of this core problem in security that was never solved, and a lot of how we do security today is essentially a lot of these sort of band-aid or sort of patches to try to solve that sort of core security problem that we have. Uh, and what got me super excited about this is that um, my, my co-founder Jan, who again I've known for you know over 20 years since our Israeli intelligence community days, uh, he he ended up doing a PhD at Stanford with with Professor Dan Bonet. And he got introduced into confidential computing and he got super excited. He reached out to me and I got super excited because there was finally a solution to that core security problem that there was just never a solution for. And some people kind of call it the holy grail of security. There's finally a way to actually solve the root cause of the problem. So I got super excited. Um, 
the, the other reason I got super excited about this is to me, security has always been an enabler for other things, right? Like without, you know, the right security, you know, online to protect your credit card online, like Amazon couldn't have existed, right? Nobody would share their credit cards online or without sort of the trust and security, you know, the banking industry wouldn't exist, right? If you can trust the bank to, to keep your, you know, your money safe, nobody would be using banks, right? So, so security has always been this enabler of bigger things. And what got me super excited about this specific technology is the, it was clear that this was going to enable the next level of compute and the next stage of compute. So again, these were sort of the two reasons I got excited enough to go, uh, you know, leave what I was doing and start this company with Yon. Awesome. And uh, now I, I have to admit, I have not heard of confidential computing until probably maybe a couple of years ago. So can you explain to our audience a little bit about how that process works? And, and a, a, a few minutes ago, we were talking about where you actually take the machine and then you actually go back and, and you take it down to a different level with the uh, like the memory space, the physical, where you have the partitions. And can you explain to our audience how you actually take the hardware and then you actually, where Jonah, you, you build that, I want to say like a protective wall around that and uh, how everything's protected. Can you actually explain to our audience how that actually, that process works? Yeah, yeah, happy to. So let me let me actually stop, but you know, sort of what is that core problem that this solves? And then I'll kind of go a little deeper in how we actually do this. But I think sort of the uh, sort of the high level of what we do is is really interesting. So essentially the, the core problem that you have is that if you run things in sort of in your own data center, you, you own the full stack, right? You own the building, you have a lock on the door, you know, it's your people running it, it's your servers, it's your networks, you kind of you you essentially own the full stack. But when you move to an environment where you don't you know, run the infrastructure, and again, the public cloud is, I guess, one of the best examples of that, right? The, the public cloud is essentially somebody else managing the infrastructure for you, right? And if that happens, the, the problem is if anybody with access to the infrastructure has full access to your data and your code running on top of that data. And that is essentially that core security problem. That's why we have you know, firewalls and antivirus, you know, solutions. That's why we patch machines because if a hacker can get, you know, root access to your system or physical access, they just have access to everything happening on that machine. And I can tell you kind of the history of how, how this got started, which is super interesting, but eventually that technology got into server CPUs exact, to solve exactly that core problem. And if you kind of go down to sort of the root cause of what sort of causes this, it all boils down to what's called the data and use uh, security problem. Uh, data can be in three places, right? It can be at rest, meaning in a database or a file system. It can be in transit, you know, on the network. And the third place that's sometimes ignored is the data in use. You know, what happens to the data when an application, you know, loads it into memory to process it? At that point, the data is just not protected because it has to be sort of in the cleared memory for the application to process it. And any anyone with access to the infrastructure can get access to the data. But what's even more interesting is when you protect data at rest and in transit, the encryption keys have to be somewhere. You have to put them somewhere to be able to, to unlock the data when you need to. And those keys, you know, live somewhere in the infrastructure, you know, either in memory or in the file system. So even if you protect data at rest and in transit, it's not really 100% protected if you miss that data and use piece. And that's exactly what the CPU vendors have built, is the ability to essentially process data in a way that's completely protected. Even if somebody has root access or physical access to the machine, they're not going to have any access to the code or the data running on top of that machine. So what it does, it puts an encryption key and data in use so that it it keep those malicious attackers away from that information. So oh actually they can't even see the data, right? They can't even see it's there. It's 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 not just the keys, it's it's essentially everything. It's the application mm-hmm. itself, it's the data that's processed by the application, it's everything. It's essentially the memory itself is protected. And if you kind of look at the history of kind of where how data has been protected, you know, 10 years ago, 
everything was HTTP, right? Nothing was sort of encrypted, uh, you know, in the network. Today, it's going to be hard for you to find a website that's not HTTPS, right? Everything is HTTPS. So the, the network is now completely encrypted. Uh, same, you know, five years ago, you know, disk wasn't really encrypted, but today every disk is encrypted. The only place that's not encrypted is the RAM, right? The memory. Today, none of the RAM is encrypted. But now that there's finally a solution, within a few years, you know, the memory is going to be encrypted uh, everywhere as well. Okay. So that that makes perfect sense the way you explain it. Uh, so I don't have to go watch a YouTube video. You just explain <laughs> it so I can understand that. I'm pretty sure our audience would like to, would appreciate that. So I have a couple of questions. So what if you actually, for example, if you have a, like a bank or, or something where you actually have a lot of a, a PII information. So what if it's somebody that's like internal in that organization? Would they, could you actually encrypt or hide or keep that information from in, in, internal attacks as well? Yeah, it's actually interesting because I don't know if you've been following the news about the Uber attack that uh, recently came out, which was essentially, uh, the, the process was essentially a phishing attack and they were able to bypass the two-factor authentication. And eventually uh, after that phishing attack, they got credentials, you know, they got the credentials of the user and then they were able to get root access to the machine. And, you know, from there, they essentially had access to everything. So it could be a malicious insider, but it could be, you know, there's somebody on the inside that got, you know, had some, you know, phishing attack, click on the wrong link or did something. And from there, uh, an attacker got root access to the system. This is exactly what this technology protects against. When you're running applications and confidential computing, even with root access, you're not going to have access to the data or the code, which is, yeah, there's definitely a lot of use cases in terms of sort of insider insider threats, but insider threats can very easily become, you know, attackers that leverage insiders to get access to the data that they need. And this is exactly what this solves against. Okay, excellent. So that that makes me shift it a little bit over to uh, with Confidential Cloud. And, uh, and I have a, a couple of questions about that. Can you explain to um, myself and to the audience how Confidential Cloud works? Yeah, so what's sort of what's been happening essentially in the in the industry that since the the confidential computing is a CPU level technology, it's something that was added by Intel, by AMD, um, uh, Nvidia announced their confidential GPUs, and it's now part of every server CPU being shipped by Intel and AMD. So this is a hardware level technology to to again finally solve that sort of core security problem. Uh, what happened then is that all the cloud vendors essentially adopted it as well. Um, and the reason why the clouds adopted confidential computing, and by adopted, I mean, you know, putting in the, you know, refresh their hardware to, to make sure that their, you know, data centers have the, the right hardware and uh, building the software stack on top of it to make sure that you can say, you know, I want a machine with confidential computing to run my workloads. Um, and essentially, the reason why the clouds have done this is for two reasons. One is to be able to turn to their customers and tell them, when you use confidential computing, you know, we don't have any access to your data on top of our infrastructure. Meaning you can move any piece of, regardless of how sensitive the information is, you can move to the cloud and we're just not going to have access. You can kind of completely trust the, the, the public cloud. Uh, and the other reason was that they wanted to turn to the federal government and tell them you can't subpoena us because we just don't have any access to our customers' data. And what, what you get when you use, sort of combine the cloud with confidential computing, which is one of the things that we, we help uh, companies do, is you essentially get a you know, a cloud, sort of a commercial cloud that is as secure and as private as a gov cloud. It's completely secure, completely private, essentially a confidential cloud that you can move any application to. So when you mentioned that the one thing about the aspect of it, somebody subpoena, subpoena a corporation and, and they say, hey, look, we don't have it. It is confidential. We don't even know what's out there. So I would think that that's probably a good thing in a way. 
that they, they, they don't have the data. But so who would you actually, the government, if they want to get that data, how could they actually get oh, they that go data? to? Yeah, yeah they, they would go to the end. I think what a lot of, and again, this is, you know, obviously, especially true for financial services organizations or think about, you know, organization in Europe, right? They have a GDPR card, they have privacy requirements to protect uh, uh, user data. But what one of the things they have to think about if they're going to use, you know, AWS or Azure or Google Cloud, essentially an American, you know, a cloud vendor, the cloud has access to everything they do on top of that cloud. Right. This is sort of that core problem. So the, the, this becomes part of their decision making is, you know, can we can we use the cloud? Because what happens if the U.S. government goes to a, goes to Amazon or goes to Microsoft or goes to Google with a subpoena and tells them, you know, give give us access to your customers data. This essentially allowed the clouds themselves to say we can't you know help the government because we don't have access. The government has to go directly to the cloud customer to get access to that data. And this gives people the, the you know, the confidence that they need. These organizations, the companies that they need to go to go use the cloud. Got it. So, so for companies, I mean, this seems like it's a really secure thing for a corporation. If I'm actually, if I have an office in um, in uh, the UK, uh, Israel, Ireland, all across around, I I, I I can see where my data is kind of more protected because now I say, okay, I've got that that extra layer of security there. And uh, but I think the, one of the questions I have would be, so what if we actually have Google? What if we have AWS and all these different type of of uh, different clouds. So, and uh, how do they actually communicate? Because they're all on different platforms. They're kind of different. How would you actually collaborate, especially if you have one one corporation? Not like I mentioned about the multi offices, but what if you're if you have multiple companies for one corporation? Yeah, and that's exactly what we see. Essentially, every every large organization today is becoming you know needs to to have a multi cloud strategy. And part of it is, you know, with financial services, regulations are driving this. Their basic regulations are driving them to think about multi-cloud. But even if you don't have regulations driving you, uh, one of our advisors is Michael Johnson, the former CISO of Capital One. And Capital One, like it's, they've been very public about this. AWS is their cloud of choice. They're, you know, they went all in on AWS, but even they have to have a multi-cloud strategy because what Michael told me is every time they acquire a company, it brings them into another cloud. So if you're a large organization, you have to think, you know, multi-cloud. And one of the challenges with, and this is exactly where we come into confidential computing. This is a hardware level technology that was, you know, that was enabled, but every cloud chose a different underlying hardware technology to go do this. And to some extent where we come in is every time there was a major architectural shift on the hardware, you needed a software stack on top of it to make it super simple to use and to make it ubiquitous across the different hardware solutions. And to some extent, this is exactly what VMware did to virtualization, right? Virtualization was this huge shift in, in computer you know, architecture and hardware architecture that was very, very clear was going to change the world of compute, but nobody was really using virtualization, not in a massive way, until VMware made it super simple. And then within a few years, everything was virtualized. Uh, this is what we're seeing now with confidential computing. It's an extremely powerful hardware level technology. All the clouds have adopted this, but every cloud adopted a different technology. What we've done at Anjuna is we'll build a software stack on top of it to make it super simple to use any confidential computing environment. So you can just take any application and run it on top of you know, any cloud, any underlying hardware technology to go run it in a completely confidential way. But one of the benefits you get on top of it is not just you can just use confidential computing in every cloud, you can also share data in a secure and confidential way across clouds or across you know, hybrid clouds right here, things in the data center and in the cloud. And one of the ways to think about this is that this essentially moves the security perimeter from today's security perimeter is usually around some physical thing, right? It's about around the server or around the data center, around some physical representation of the data. This allows you to put the perimeter around the workloads themselves. 
and around more of the sort of uh, virtual representation of the application, right? Every application has different workloads, different components to it. You can kind of put a uh, sort of a perimeter around each one of these components and make sure the data is communicated securely between these components. And that's sort of the right way to put the, the security perimeter. Okay. So when you guys actually, at Ajuna, when you actually go to a corporation and say, we're going to make sure we put the right parameters around it, do you guys actually do like a, have a checklist or something? Do you have like a, is it like a certifiable type process that you, that you follow that the, like NIST is, is it one of the NIST protocols that you do that? Because I haven't seen anything, maybe it's a better question would have been, I have not seen anything about cloud cloud policies and procedures like with a, with a confidential cloud. Is there anything out there saying, here's what the parameters are for confidential cloud that you all should be following? Yeah, so so one of the things we're doing is we're, we're essentially making it easy to use the underlying the underlying technology, right? This, this is not, a, the underlying technology is not the technology that we've built, it's the technology that Intel's built and AMD has built uh, and AWS built their own hardware solution for this. And, um, you know, NVIDIA has built a solution or is building a solution for GPUs. So this is the underlying technology. We just make it super, super simple to go to go use. It. What I can tell you in terms of regulations, we're starting to see more and more regulators starting to look into this. And if you kind of look at where the regulation is today, you know, there's regulation basically saying you have to encrypt data at rest, you have to encrypt data in transit, but there's nothing saying you have to encrypt data in use. And it's not because data in use is not important. To some extent, this is the most important component. There's just never been a solution to protect data in use. And now that there's finally a solution for this, regulators are starting to look into this. And I expect this to be part of regulations where, again, it's not they're not necessarily going to say which technology to use or kind of how to use it, but they're going to say you have to protect data while it's in use now that there's a way to, to finally do this. Okay. Now, is it different with the uh, GDPR over in uh, the UK right now? Do they actually have any kind of restrictions or, or better, are they a little bit more advanced in this particular area? So we're seeing a lot of privacy regulations sort of coming into a lot of different regions, right? We have GDPR in Europe. We have the California Privacy Act here in, you know, in California. Uh, we see that, you know, other states are, uh, you know, putting in privacy regulations. Plus, we just see it coming across the, you know, Australia's uh, uh, working on a privacy act of their own. India is working on one. I think this is something that's just is going to happen globally, and we're seeing it ha- happen globally, uh, where countries are putting in privacy regulations around you know uh, uh, consumer data, which 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 makes sense, right? You want to make sure the data is protected. But what confidential computing allows you to do is essentially the only the, the the company itself you know has access to the data and not anybody else. So one of the challenges with GDPR is if you take a workload. That you know is processing you know European you know consumers data, and you run it you know in in a cloud in the U.S. What does that mean? You know, is the, does the cloud, which are not you know which are you know U.S. citizens, do they have access to the data? Can the U.S. government come in with a subpoena and get access to the data? It essentially breaks that sort of GDPR requirements. But when you have confidential computing, if you can process the data in a way that's just completely unaccessible, regardless of where the the, the application runs, suddenly you can take those workloads and kind of run them anywhere you know, geographically without having that risk of access to the infrastructure, meaning access to the data. Okay. So, and, and, uh, and I, I can imagine when you actually do this, because now when you put the, the codes there and I'm thinking about the people that's actually trying to phishing, trying to hack into systems. So when they actually go back and look at the command, all the data information, they don't even see it, right? They don't even know it exists. Is, is, am, I, am, I, am I saying it right that they can't see the information when they try to hack into the systems? 
exactly. And to some extent, one of the one of the things that the security as industry, you know, security industry is doing is kind of finding, you know, which systems are unpatched. And you know, like you know, ninety something percent of vulnerabilities that we have all these sort of vulnerability scanners do is, you know, unpatched systems. And what does that mean in terms of vulnerabilities? But once you use confidential computing, none of that matters anymore. Because a zero day in the operating system, a vulnerability in the operating system doesn't matter. Even if you have full access, root access to the operating system, you're not going to have any access to the data or the code running there. So that's like 80% of the security stack that is being used today is not needed anymore. If you mm -hmm. use confidential computing to protect all your workloads, because again, it doesn't matter what type of level of access you have to the, to the infrastructure, to the physical server itself, to the hypervisor, to the operating system, to the container framework, none of that matters anymore. And it doesn't matter if it's patched or unpatched, it doesn't matter if you're on a firewall or not, it doesn't matter if there's an antivirus, none of that matters. Because even if you're a hacker with root access to the system and physical access, you don't have access to the data. Wow, this this is a game changer. I, I don't know why I just started to hear about this a couple of years ago, but I'm listening to it sounds like it's been perfected now. It's just like this is just gonna exponentially change any any kind of institution, uh, no matter whether it's government or, or consumer or, or private type company, that they're there it's gonna give them another additional layer of protection where people should feel much better knowing that their data is encrypted. Because and I, and I say that because I was thinking about with uh, like web 3.0 and I was thinking about with blockchain with all the different ways that we can actually utilize blockchain, but this seems like something that we can use today, you know, that that people can actually apply to the organizations to fully protect their data. Am I am I understanding this right? No, you're exactly right. And I think every time, like, kind of looking back, every time there was a security solution that was super simple to use and had essentially no performance impact, it became the default because like, why wouldn't you use it for everything, right? And we've seen that with cases like the firewall, right? The, the firewall, you know, when it started, it was just these very large organizations or banks using it to protect their most sensitive networks when they connect them to the internet. But once you had default policies as part of the firewall, when it was just basically just turn it on and that's it, it just works. You know, within a few years, every like it'd be sort of crazy to even connect your home network to the internet without a firewall. Right? It just became the default. Uh, we've seen the same with with HTTPS. Right when it started, it was just sort of banking websites using HTTPS to protect their their website. But today, you know, it's every website. It's it's hard to find a website without HTTPS today. You know, you know, CNN.com is HTTPS, and it's not because there's anything sensitive on a news website. But it's because you know it's you just turn it on. There's no performance impact. Why wouldn't you turn it on for for everything? And this is exactly the same thing. Confidential computing allows you to protect you know workloads and data in any environment. And it's again we we at Angelo we make it super simple to use. We just essentially turn it on and it works. Uh, there's no performance impact. The performance impact is super super low because all the heavy lifting is done by the hardware itself. That's one of the smart things that the CPU vendors have done. All the encryption, all the heavy lifting is done you know in the in the chipset itself and on the critical path in the CPU. So it's extremely performant. So there's really nothing you know, to, to stop organizations from just using it for everything, which is exactly uh, what we're starting to see. Okay. So, and you're starting to see it with, uh, are you working with government institutions at all? Or are you pretty much, is it all around? All, it doesn't matter now at this stage. Are you guys starting to work with all levels? So, so we're working with a few governments. One of the public case studies we've done, we've done with the Israeli Ministry of Defense. And they're essentially using us to adopt the commercial cloud uh, and essentially using the commercial cloud with the security and privacy of a gov cloud. So that was a super interesting use case. Uh, we also see obviously a lot of traction with um, in the private sector as well. So financial services, uh, uh, software companies, uh, we talked about Web3, we, we see a lot, of, we get a lot of traction with Web3 companies, uh, but essentially any organization that 
you know, wants to move sensitive data to the cloud or to any any environment where they don't sort of trust the infrastructure, uh, this becomes a key a key component. Okay. And my, my last question would be this. So I can see this all working very fluidly with blockchain. I, I, I can see that within, and I, I think that when we actually do our transactions, people can actually feel really confident that their data is protected and they don't have to worry about going to a gas, putting their card inside of a uh, a gas pump and or going to a retail store and to find out, you know, 6 million people got breached last week. And you no, know, you know, it happened. You learned about it last week, but it happened like two months ago, you know? <laughs> so, so I can see this being a really big ma- a major game changer. Oh, we, we definitely see a lot of traction with Web3 companies. And a lot of the protocols for, you know, blockchain Web3 require this level of security. Web3 is essentially sort of the, the intersection of, you know, it's, it's essentially financial services companies and in essence, it's software companies. There's their they're targets, right? They're, there's a lot of money involved. And every time there's a lot of money, you know, that people become targets. So so we definitely see a lot of, plus they're, they're very innovative, right? These are new companies with very, very smart, very technical people that kind of understand the value. So we definitely see a lot of traction with Web3 companies. We have a lot of inbounds from Web3 companies. It's definitely one of those areas that we spend a lot of time on. But again, we it goes well beyond that. Again, financial services, you know, large banks. We see, you know, sort of every I'd say every G two thousand company with sensitive data is a company that's that's looking into this or that should be looking into this. Great, Ayala. I just want to thank you for your time here. This has been a very informative uh, uh, podcast here, and I'm, I'm sure that when people listen to this, they're going to look at that and get a different perspective on the, the changing technology. And I think they're going to actually take a look at this and say, how can we actually protect our data in, in a much higher level than what we're doing right now? And so you've been a very informative with this information. I really want to thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from your host, connect with Maurice on LinkedIn at Maurice Hamilton. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.